0: talking to Joni Murphy, author of Talking Animals, out now with Book Hug Press. Joni Murphy is from New Mexico and lives in New York. Her debut novel, Double Teenage, was published in 2016 and was named one of the Globe and Mail's 100 Best Books of the Year. Talking Animals takes place in an all-animal world where animals, very much like us, are forced to deal with an all-too-familiar landscape of soul-crushing jobs, polluted oceans, and a creeping sense of doom. Our protagonist, Alfonso, is a moody alpaca. His friend Mitchell is a sociable llama. They both work at City Hall, but their true passions are noise music and underground politics. Talking Animals is an urgent allegory about friendship, art, and the struggle to change one's life under the low ceiling of capitalism. Hi, Joni. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for having me. The book's dedication is for the animals. In describing the book, I've been quickly summarizing it as a world that anthropomorphizes animals. But I'm wondering if taking up this project was sort of an attempt to reveal the root animal in us all.
1: Definitely, I, I I think in some way, whether this works or not, or but I was more interested in anthropomorphizing humans or animalizing. But but I think I was always really troubled by the dis, the distinction of human and animal, um, and the denial of the animal as kind of like subjects and. Participants in, you know in society. Um, so I really just tried to completely blur the boundaries between the animal and the human rather than flipping kind of one into the other, which I feel like is there's such a strong sort of cultural literary push to kind of like choose a side and then say, the animal is this kind of other that we can never access or it's completely like us. I just wanted to kind of blur them together.
0: It's in the title too, right? Talking animals. I Yeah, because I think
1: um, especially language is, is especially written language um, is this, you know, or language in general is kind of seen as something like animals don't have and can't have. Um, even though there's so many instances of like, when we find more out about animals, it's always, like, they're more communicative and have more language,
0: not less. I just have this idea of your brain when writing this book. Do you have pets? I do. <laughs> I have. Did you just, like, stare at them, like, for hours? <laughs> like- well, I actually
1: um, – my partner and I got uh, our cat, like in the beginning of COVID. So I had had, I'd always lived with cats. um, And then I went through a period of not having any pets. But I, so I kind of developed this thing of, I lived next to a dog park, and I just got really into kind of making eye contact with every animal that I saw on the street. Um, And really, yeah, I just thought about animals a whole lot. And I would sort of you know look at them kind of more than human beings um and there's a lot of animals in new york even though it's kind of you know human centric i i really try to just seek out like i was like okay there's the pigeon i'm looking at the pigeon
0: but were you you know you know like there's this there's this idea of the writer who like people watches or it's like sitting in their cafe and they're building these characters based on like the man who walks in and looks like he's living such and such life. Like, were you doing this with animals? I think I also,
1: I was doing that with animals. And at the same time I was kind of looking at every human being, um, thinking about in what ways they were an animal or maybe what animal I could kind of see in them. um, Yeah, so I was doing both. When I would look at people, I would sort of think of them as an animal. And then I was looking at all the dogs and basically being like, ah, yes, your complex lives. (laughs) Uh,
0: I love to know in these kind of, you know, sprawling plot-driven novels um, if the story came first or if it was mapped out and then worked from there or if it developed in the writing process.
1: Um. I mean I think I'm not a natural plot person or writer but I in in some ways I really so that was a difficult thing to for me that I looked at I thought a lot about like um 1970s kind of conspiracy you know plot uh, plot against the government or the government's plot against you and how I think in a lot of those films what What I was thinking about, the the plots kind of don't always add up, you know, or there's this sprawling conspiracy of, you know, the CIA or, um, and it almost is there, but if you kind of pulled on it, you're like, well, what actually happened? Um, So I think that the, like, mood and the atmosphere and the characters and their relationships came first um, because there is... Not to say that there's like nihilism or a sense of nothing possible. Um, but in the end, I think the internal work of the characters probably counts more for the big plot kind of
0: actions. It's interesting that you, you're addressing the mood. Like, I mean, this book is hilarious, which leads me to believe that you're hilarious. I really admire how you managed to, you know, take up a project that involved the work of so much llama punning. I just, the idea of thinking about that just makes me laugh in itself. And, and you know, you do it well, it, it's really funny. But at the same time, the book isn't exactly lighthearted. You know, characters in conversation, especially Mitchell, they often end up dishing out, you know, manifestos, thoughtful breakdowns of what's so urgently wrong in this world and and all the ways in which systems are frayed at the edges. And I know a writer isn't supposed to think of the reader when writing, but I'm wondering, did you ever wonder how the reader would reconcile like the two moods of the novel? I mean,
1: I think that the, I didn't, I think of the reader in that I think of myself and my friends and what I feel is funny and what I think my my friends feel is funny. And I think just, I don't, I I have a tendency to do this, but I'm trying not to, but it's like the generation or the community that I belong to, I think that sort of heavy light mixture is very normal for everyone because we do have this, I think there's a widespread sense of the world's ending or continually ending and reaching these crisis points, Um, but you still have to like make jokes and be with your friends. So the two kind of registers, it's like you make a joke because you are truly scared or truly furious. Um, and I mean, I i really in earnest worked on this book to uh, kind of like it. it and the Trump administration like go together. And it was in a lot of ways my way of, coping, um, with that. Cause I, you know, I started it in January. I didn't start it then, but I, I really, really started seriously working on it in January, 2017. Um, and there is that, you know, the last five years of the United States has had such a hard edge of like, cruelty and brutality um, but also like the funniest like most absurd kind of like this is a simulation or this is jokes written by you know the matrix. Um, So so those two things felt I was just trying to be honest to the mood that I was living in.
0: I I definitely want to talk more about the absurdity of it but I also like want to indulge a bit because, you know, just briefly, I, I have dabbled in stand-up and I know folks who have dabbled in stand-up, and, and joke writing is a very specific process, probably wildly different in comparison to, you know, for a novel, let alone in stand-up. But I'm wondering what your process of joke writing is.
1: Well, I had I feel I tried to thank them all in my acknowledgments, but I had a very active group chat where I would sort of throw out a prompt to my friends who are all, like some of them are just so funny and kind of have that, there was very quippy, but it was a lot of it was like kind of workshopped um, through text message. So I would sort of say like, what is an animal insult? And I, I leaned into this so much, and I think everyone was just like, what is she talking about? They hadn't read the novel. I sort of would tell them, but I think a lot of people thought like the writing of the book was a joke. Um, but I was like, no, no, I'm very seriously writing a novel. It's all about animals. So if animals in New York were like insulting each other, what would they say? Um, and then we'd have like a long chain, and I would like grab the best ones. So lots of the jokes are kind of like either a group effort or just me stealing some good one-liners from my friends.
0: Already I can see how that, like, differs from, from stand-up writing where you just text your friends, is this funny, like, <laughs> in the middle of the night and, like, kind of just leave it at <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> I was, well, I've always, I think I am a little, like, jealous of, you know, the way that people are jealous of, like, I wish I was in a band and you're like, I'm not going to be in a band. But it's like the the idea of the TV writer's room as in an ideal sense, in my mind, it would have like group effort. And, you know, whether I was doing so much, I am kind of, I have kind of uh, the ability to make things serious and describe scenes and get into these little nuances. But then I just wanted there to be those little good, sparkling jokes. Um, and I, I think they all were okay with
0: that kind of contributing and sharing. What are the books that have made you laugh? And I mean, like, actually, like, laugh.
1: Oh, man. I mean, that's the, that is the funny thing where I I'm – my reading habits, especially – in the last while have been like very not funny. Um, But I'm trying to, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, You can sit on it if you want. (laughs) Let me think about it because I'm like looking over at my bookshelf. Honestly, it's the, my reading list for, I've been, I read a lot of Primo Levi and that towards the end of last year. And I was sort of going into this fascism and, uh world war ii <laughs> yeah i was going to the fascism in world war ii kind of like deep cuts uh and and my husband is just like what are you you know so not funny but um i'll try to think about it
0: and, you know, as we've addressed, there's there's definitely a level of absurdity in, in, in the novel. You know, on page 111, the characters end up at a bar discussing philosophy, but this philosophy is called the good boy method. And it's founded by a dog who went on a spiritual journey to really ask the question, what does it mean to be a good boy? Are, are you telling the reader to laugh at the absurdity of it or, you know, actually just doing the work that philosophers do, which is asking and really considering hey what does this thing actually mean well like with the
1: good boy method as a particular little side um kind of story um i was i think kind of getting out my feelings about like positivity and self-help movements that are very individualist um so the the it's To me, like, The Good Boy Method was about kind of pseudo-philosophy and self-help. And I did—I remember doing a little reading. There's, like, the school of practical philosophy that um, there was always ads on the subway. And I remember reading someone who had gone into it, and it's just their whole— I, be, I mean, I could be misquoting, but I believe the whole idea was like, you go to this thing and you say, what would a, what would a wise person do? And then you just do that, which seemed like insane to me. Um, so I think there's all those kind of, you know, um, pseudo cults and, you know, ways that people want to just kind of feel better. Um, But I did want to think about it seriously, while also joking about like if dogs had a pseudo philosophy, and other, and they could like recruit other animals to just be like, just be a good boy. That's it.
0: But why was why is it so wild to you? Which part? To think about someone looking to follow someone else's wisdom.
1: Oh no, I think it was it was. I mean, obviously, I think that's what we all do. But the the main. The main question was like, it just felt too basic to sort of say like, what would a wise person do? I'll just do that. Each time it's sort of, you're not really wrestling with the ideas of that wise person. You're kind of just being like, what would they do? And then you, you do that. It's, it's, maybe it is a good method. It felt really like too simple to me. Yeah, it's like making you laugh. Like <laughs> it's too funny. It's it's yeah. there's something about it that it just sounds like cheating, um, right? Or you it's know, too easy. it's too. It's like I don't think it works that way because, especially in the era that we live in, where the kind of constant flow of information into your mind, I feel like it's like you'd really need to meditate and cut things away before you could even imagine. You know you're I don't even know who the it would be like, is it Hannah Arendt? what would Hannah Arendt do? What would Aristotle do? who is your like is it Ayan Rand? like who is the good person that you are or the wise person that you're following it It feels like it could fall apart in some way
0: i I don't think the average writer would say it was like their goal to impart wisdom. I think you know I try to write, I'm horrified at at, at that claim. But um, one of the blurbs on the book, Eugene Lim, author of Dear Cyborgs, calls the book wise and hilarious. And I totally agree with Eugene because, and in particular with this book, because it really is full of so much teachings. You know, at the very least, the characters in their like harsh noise punk rock backgrounds are always trying to convince each other of something philosophically or politically. And not only just convince each other, I think it's unavoidable. They end up partially convincing the reader at least having the effect of that and I'm wondering if that's something you took into account in your like writing process like Joni sit down impart wisdom (laughs) because it's full of it the book (laughs) this book in particular is so full of it well
1: I mean I think I do I be I come to writing fiction from a kind of had some training in critical theory or a more, you know, writing an essay, it's like, maybe you are trying to convince people of something, Um, especially, you know, cultural, political ideas and the way that things are working in you and you are kind of embedded in systems that are ultimately hurting you, hurting, or hurting kind of the larger systems, uh, larger groups. So I I think that I, I, and I, coming from that background where I'm like, yes, I want to talk about ideas and convince people of things, um, doesn't always mix with, you know, what you're quote unquote supposed to do in fiction writing. Um, So I, there was a lot of things that I thought, oh, I'm not, this is tricky or maybe going to get me in trouble, you know, in some writing way. Um, And I, so I was like, let me just lean all the way into those, you know, manifestos, um, lectures, things that are, I'm telling like my opinion about, especially kind of politics under neoliberal capitalism. So I definitely had ideas and I think I, in some ways leaned, you know, use the animals to try to soften that because I felt like, okay, if it's a if it's a cat lecturing you, it could be kind of taken in a different way.
0: Can you talk to me a bit about any experiences you might have working in office life because you hit the minutiae of it all so precisely, you know, to the point where the entire plot unfurls because the printer is not working. <laughs> yeah. I, oh
1: man, the printer. I love, I lo- I loved the printer so much because I, I think like copiers and printers and I feel like some of that was informed by going to school, like pre-office life where I would, you know, I feel like my whole college experience was like I really need to turn this paper in and that's when the printer would like stop working or run out of toner you know run out of ink and the expense of like ink cartridges and I would always kind of be in a heightened state of awareness because you'd be I mean you know there's that feeling of like I've written this whole thing I've like worked myself up into a a fervor, and then the machine can kind of, like, stop everything, Um, and, yeah, I mean, I currently, I currently work at home, (laughs) but I have an office job, and it is, it hurts my soul, Um, and I think that it, you know, I have a sort of, I think that why did I laugh? <laughs> no, <laughs> no,
0: it's just because of sheer familiarity of like years of, of that. That's that's what it is. Yeah. And
1: yeah, and I think I, I tie it into um there is a certain sense of I have the opinion that that you know the modern bureaucracy is designed to kind of make people feel like they have no agency, like every decision is made somehow in them in the system rather than With human beings. Um, And that can lead to kind of really destructive, evil choices. Um, But everyone feels like a little bit guilty, and yet no one's really feeling it. Um, So I just, I mean, I have a friend who was saying, like, in a way, she felt like the novel now we're kind of no one has an office job anymore, but we all, like, work online endlessly. Um, But I still liked the the space of the physical office and him being kind of like the sole being that's still in this one office and just like the kind of Bartleby figure who's just kind of alone in his room with his machines.
0: There is a portion of the book that centers around academia as well. There's almost a tension between the power that knowledge holds, you know, knowledge academia and the power that capitalism wields. I'm wondering if you could speak further about that tension and how it found its place in the book.
1: Um I think that I really identify like the the character sort of sees the academic world as his way out of the office and the life of the mind and his it would create meaning and a sense of place for him, um, but he's also living at the end of. I think, you know, the academy ha- is kind of crumbling under the same weight. Um, it's built on debt. It's like, in a certain sense, I think my ungenerous um, part of my brain says that, like a cat, the academy as it's currently functioning is like a pyramid scheme they allow too many people in. So if you are getting a PhD, the chances of getting a job as compared to previous generations, it's more like winning the lottery. Um, So I think he's really, the character is really attached like his life's purpose to belonging to the academy. Um, But that is sort of disintegrating under, you know, it's already disintegrated, but he's sort of clinging to it like a life raft. And I think, you know, the academy as it is now in the United States is kind of run by business people, Um, and I think that is not good.
0: But, I mean, tell me more. Like, I, I also agree that it's not good. I don't need you to solve it, but if it's not good, what would be better? Um...
1: I mean, <laughs> if I, I'll, I'll answer the question in the, like the world of the animals a little bit. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I mean, I think that capitalism has, in a sense, poisoned people's thinking. Um, so there's been a sort of forgetfulness about like what is the goal? What is the goal of society? Um, if it is constantly to create value and everything is a possible source of value, um, then I think that idea relies on like this potential of eternal growth or merging markets and who will we sell to next? Um, and I think, the academic world has, in a certain sense, not because people in it necessarily want it to be that way, but it's been pushed along by that, the, that's the incentive. Whereas, um, I think if you, if one, if a group of people are thinking about, like, what is society really about? Why would we want people to be educated? Um, You know, I think capitalism is like a death cult that will just drive us all like to destruction. So if we keep accepting its terms, whether it's about like making yourself a, a better scholar so you can win this sort of job or becoming a better oil executive, you know, that pressure is kind of terrifying and We can feel it in all aspects of our lives. So I think there needs to be like, and I think we're all undergoing this sort of reckoning, like what's the goal here? (laughs) Um, And yeah, and I think out of that, we'd probably have to have a, a, a real change in like, what are universities for? How much do they cost? How big are they? You know, I mean, obviously these are like utopian or big things
0: that, it's not a small question. I wasn't very fair. I didn't hit you with the small <laughs> question. It was, and it was a very good answer for a very big question. Without spoiling the book, I think I can say that the the main characters face a moment of, you know, personal crises, and they're ultimately met with a specific path in which to actively respond to the crises. And you know, that path isn't giving up and resigning themselves to sadness or failure. Did this need to happen? Did these characters need to lose everything in order to gain everything? Did that decision, tell me more about giving them that decision. Um,
1: I think I wanted the characters to, I had a sort of sense of hope. And some of that hope comes out of like, thinking of yourself as a community, um, as a part of a group, sort of collective thinking rather than the despair of the individual. Um, so, it, and I think that's it's a subtle mental kind of shift that ultimately is happening where um, there's this looking outward for okay, some event is going to happen and that will fix this kind of corrupt system. You know, the corrupt mayor. The um, I was thinking a lot about um, you know the the Paradise Papers and the what are the other ones called Panama Panama Papers? No, no, it was like um, there was those revelations that sort of happened and they early teens, it was like, everyone has offshore, all these rich people have offshore banking, like everyone. They hide your money, they don't pay taxes. Um, And there's that kind of feeling of like, we're gonna expose it, there's gonna be leaks, there's going to be, we're gonna show. Um, And I, you know, I think that those, we've had successive waves of that, like reveal the corruption, and it will be fixed because it's been published in the New York Times. And I think that's not maybe the answer um, and that what we're kind of living through is, it's like individuals, as, as individuals, as small kind of fragile beings, if we, we have to actually just like do the work and feel connected to one another in that work because it's, it's not going to happen, we can't wait for it. So like collective action was to me like a hopeful perspective for the or place for the kind of characters to end up.
0: I will say that the the book builds up to, you know, a moment, certainly. and and i I want to be careful in my wording because again, I don't want to spoil anything. Um, so you know, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, read it. Um, and and in in that moment that I'm talking about, but not talking about, is this book optimistic?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean uh, I I think so. I mean there's there is this uh, It's like you have to have a certain hope in a long-term sense. Um I mean you don't have to, but I feel like I have to to kind of go on living um there has to be kind of some hope floating in my consciousness. Um, So I, you know, that it's like when you're kind of, there was various ending points that I played around with, um, like how it would end. And I think in some ways it's, again, like the smaller end there's, a, there's, like, a big idea or a big event, and then there's this kind of smaller, like, how does it affect your consciousness and what choices does the character take because of, you know, reaching that point of crisis. So I think there's, you know, it's kind of hopeful, but I also think that, you know, environmentally we are things, there's a lot broken you know, and, and there's a lot of, um, the you know, capital, capitalism in terms of, like, the oil industry and the things that are really um, strong. They're not just going to be like, oh, right, this was a bad idea. Sorry about it, guys. You know, so um, I I have, like, some kind of hopelessness and then mixed with some. That I in think the, the book, book is, and in, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I think the book is. When I say all this, I think that's what I mean is that I was trying to kind of create that feeling or mood in the book, which to me is like reflective of the mood I feel in the present.
0: Thank you, Joni. This is great. Great. Uh, Talking animals is in store St. Henry Books, um, and you can buy a copy. You should buy a copy. Thank you so much.